Well, go ahead and take your Bibles and turn with me to Judges chapter 9. Judges chapter 9. We have been making our way through the book of Judges. And we come to chapter 9. Last week we talked about the demise of Gideon. We talked about how he forgot how he was given success. We, f- we talked about he, how he lived hypocritically. He lived according to his own authority and he indulged his sinful desires. And that made him end terribly. Chapter 9 is going to continue the story of Gideon, but Gideon has died. He's not in the picture. It's going to be with his son. Uh, you remember... The people wanted to make Gideon king, right? Please be king over us. And Gideon rightfully says, I will not be your king with his mouth. But then with his life, he functionally becomes their king. He asks them to pay homage to him, to give him riches. He even names his son Abimelech, which in Hebrew means my father, Avi or Abi, my father is Melech, king. My father is king. So he says, I'm not going to be your king, but I'm going to name my son uh, my dad's king. Gideon had said, again, more to the point, very rightly, I'm not going to be your king. God's going to be your king. But then he lived as if God was not his king. And chapter 9 is a perfectly depressing picture of what it looks like when God is not king. You could really title chapter 9 with those words, when God is not king. This is what happens. So, before we dive in, let's ask God's blessing on a sacred moment in this day, in this week, to let God's voice thunder in this building and change us from the inside out. Father, that is our prayer. We want to be transformed. We don't want to just accumulate knowledge. We want to be transformed. So do that work by the power of your word, according to your spirit, Holy Spirit, open our eyes to behold wonderful things from your law. And even in depressing Judges chapter 9, there are wonderful things to behold. Father, thank you for the promise that's in this book. That when your word goes forth, it accomplishes something. There are people in this room that need to be comforted in a very highly unlikely place to turn is Judges 9, and yet there is comfort in these verses. There are people in this room that need to be afflicted in their comfort. And your word will do that this morning if we would have ears to hear. So God, please be merciful to us, be gracious to us by opening our eyes, opening our ears, opening our hearts. Save, sanctify, and bring glory to your name. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. This is a very, very long chapter. And as such, we're going to break it up into three main headings. And it's a story. As we've seen, every other section in Judges has been a story. It's a story, but inside of the story, we see amazing principles for our daily Living. So three headings. The first is a corrupt king. A corrupt king. This is verses 1 through 6 in Judges chapter 9. Judges chapter 9, verses 1 through 6, a corrupt king. And that's Abimelech, verse 1. Abimelech, the son of Jeroboam, who is Gideon, that's another name for Gideon, went to Shechem to his mother's relatives, and he speaks to them. So Abimelech, his name means my father is king. 
He's going to go do something that's going to change the course of Israel's history. He's going to go do something that will take all of chapter 9 to describe, but the rest of the Bible to fully understand. Abimelech is the second most described person in the book of Judges, second only to Samson. Why so much detail? I want more detail on Shamgar. You remember Shamgar? He killed all these people with just an ox goat. I want to figure out how that went down, but no, just half of a sentence, that's it, and we get an entire chapter with a lot of description devoted to this man Abimelech. Why? Because this man and this chapter is a beautiful picture, it's a beautiful description of what happens when you slowly compromise and you give a little and you give a little and you give a little where it will end up. That's what this chapter is going to show us. Gideon went to his grave thinking that he had done a good job keeping it all together. He knew it was unraveling, but he put a little duct tape around it and he thought, hey, I ended well. And Abimelech is going to tell us Gideon did not end well. This is the direct legacy of Gideon's choices. Remember, Gideon had several wives and he also had one concubine, and Abimelech is the son of his relationship with the concubine. So he goes to Shechem. Shechem, in your Bible, you could circle this word Shechem and say, very important place. Uh, this is like saying um, God went to Gettysburg, uh, a place where when you hear the title, when you hear the name of this location, just a bunch of images are conjured up in your mind. You, you see things that happen there, battles that happen there, treaties that were made there. Um, when Shechem is spoken of in Judges 9, it would take the readers all the way back to the first time that we mentioned, that God mentioned Shechem. It's where God appeared to Abraham and said, this is the land that I'm going to give to you in, Judges, or in Genesis chapter 12. Shechem is the first place in the entirety of Israel to have an altar built to worship God. It's the first altar that was ever built was built in Shechem to worship God. It was the place where Abraham's descendants gathered together to worship him after crossing into the promised land under Joshua's rule. Jacob's well is in Shechem. Joshua renewed the covenant. You remember between the mountains, Mount Gerizim and Mount Ebal? That's where Shechem is. Shechem is at the bottom of those two mountains. Very, very famous location. And it's going to come back uh, later in this account to show us why Shechem was so powerful, such a a profound location. So he goes to Shechem, to his mother's relatives, to his brothers and other descendants in Shechem. And he speaks to them, middle of verse 1, and to the whole clan of the household of his mother's father. And he says this, verse 2, Speak now in the hearing of all the leaders of Shechem, which is better for you, that 70 men, all the sons of Gideon, my father, rule over you, or that one man rule over you? So which would be better for you? Which would you rather have? Would you like 70 kings ruling over you or would you like one king ruling over you? And they're going, well, one king would be better than 70, all trying to figure things out. And then he adds this on to the end of it. Also, remember that I am your bone and your flesh. Those other 70 brothers of mine, they're just half brothers because they were with other wives, with Gideon and other wives. I am the only one of my mom, the concubine, and her uh, husband, um, Gideon, the person who slept with her, and all of the lineage inside the descendants of Shechem. I'm unique. All of these people lived over here with Gideon, but I lived with you, with my mom in Shechem. So I'm one of you. And when I'm raised up to power, I will remember that. I'll take care of you. 
So his mother's relatives spoke all these words on his behalf in the hearing of all the leaders of Shechem. And they were inclined to follow Abimelech, for they said, he's our relative. That's the one that got them. Well, he's related to us. So when he becomes powerful, he'll take care of us. He's just saying, Abimelech's just saying, look, I don't want to scare you or anything, but there's 70 other guys out there that could come in and destroy you if they want to. But if you make me king, I'll take care of you. So what do they do? Uh, drop down to verse 4. They gave him 70 pieces of silver from the house of Baal Berith. This is uh, a god of the covenant. Berith is just covenant. So this is uh, Baal of the covenant. That's a temple. So Abimelech is going to hire men to do his bidding from the money that they're going to steal from Baal's temple. Every judge that has been raised up in the book of Judges was raised up by the power of God. And now Abimelech, who's not a judge, he's the son of a judge, he'll be a king, but Abimelech is going to be raised up by the power of the money of Baal's temple. And notice, Abimelech hires, and I love how it says this, forever marked down in the Bible, worthless and reckless fellows. These people are the worst of the worst, and they follow him. And they went to his father's house, verse 5, and Ophrah, and killed his brothers, the sons of uh, Jerubbabel, 70 men on one stone. That word for stone is a word for where you would slaughter cattle. It was a very large stone, very flat, where you would slaughter uh, cattle uh, to, to eat. And so this is, a, this is a terrorist attack. This is a ceremonial lining up of all of Abimelech's brothers and slaughtering them on this rock. This is not a pretty picture. This is a disgusting picture. But Jotham, the youngest son of Jerobabal, was left because he hid himself. So all of the brothers except for Jotham, and all of the men, verse 6, after witnessing this at Shechem, and all of the men at Beth Malo assembled together, and they went and they made Abimelech king by the oak of the pillar, which is in Shechem. This, this is the exact opposite of what they should have done. They should have seen Abimelech is terrorizing our people. He's murdering and he's slaughtering in terrorist attacks. We don't want this guy around. But instead they say, you know what? Uh, I don't want to fight against him. Look at what he, if he does this to his own brothers, what is he going to do to me if I'm not even his relative? So we'll just give him what he wants. Let's make him king. And they make him king in Shechem. They say, we don't need God to be our king anymore. We'll have a human king and kick God out of the picture. Where God had made the treaty with his own people, a covenant with his people of promise, I'm going to take care of you. They, at that same site, say, we don't need you, God. We're going to enjoy having a man be our king. Remember I said Shechem would be like saying the word Gettysburg, where it would bring up a bunch of images of what happened. In essence, what's happening here would be like America going back to Gettysburg to reinstitute slavery. At, the, at this location where something amazing happened, you're just undoing all of it. And so they are undoing everything by making Abimelech king. A corrupt king. We meet Abimelech, not a very nice man, a very, very wicked man. And again, we, we read... The Bible is a textbook, right? We just read it as an academic textbook. It's black letters on a white page, and we don't understand the fear that would come into play when you're trying to make this man king or not. You're trying to figure it out, and he says, just come to where I slaughtered my brothers, and there's blood everywhere. Come there and see. 
You have to put yourself in the story. But that's not how the story is going to end. That's only how it begins. Point number two, we have a corrupt king and we have a fabled curse. A fabled curse. Point number two, a fabled curse. This is verses 7 through 21. A big chunk, 7 through 21. While this coronation is happening for this corrupt king, Jotham goes... He's been told what's happening. He's been told there's a coronation. And he stands on top of Mount Gerizim and he lifts up his voice and he calls out. So Shechem is down in the valley. He goes up on the side of this hill, Mount Gerizim, and he's going to yell in such a way that everybody's going to hear him. And he does it on Mount Gerizim, which is very interesting because Mount Gerizim, if you remember, when Joshua went into the promised land, half of Israel stood on one mountain, half of Israel stood on the other mountain, Mount Gerizim, Mount Ebal, Mount Ebal had all of the curses. Ebal, evil, evil curses were set. If we don't do these things that God has required of us, may all of these evils befall us. Mount Gerizim was the mountain of blessing. But here Jotham goes to Mount Gerizim and says, all the blessings that we were going to inherit have become curses for us because we're not obeying God. So he's going to pronounce a curse from Mount Gerizim. He lifts up his voice and he says, Listen to me, O men of Shechem that God may listen to you. Listen to me so that God will listen to you as you move towards him and repent. Jotham's going to make, uh, draw a line in the sand. He's going to make them make a choice. Abimelech, uh, my father is king. Jotham's name means Yahweh is perfect. Yahweh is perfect. And he's going to stand up and defend the perfection of Yahweh. And he tells a, a fable. A fable is where an animal or an inanimate object takes on human characteristics. You think of Aesop's fables, but in Israel, this is Israel's fables. This is Jotham giving a story. Verse 8, Once the trees went forth to anoint a king over them, and they said to the olive tree, Reign over us, olive tree, good tree, big tree. But the olive tree said, Shall I leave my fatness with which God and men are honored and go to wave over the trees? So the trees said, verse 10, to the fig tree, come reign over us. But the fig tree said to them, Shall I leave my sweetness and my good fruit and go to wave over the trees? And the trees said to a vine, Come reign over us. But the vine said to them, Shall I leave my new wine, which cheers God and men, and go to wave over the tree? Finally, verse 14, All the trees said to a bramble. My Bible says bramble. Maybe you have... A tumbleweed, maybe you have thistle. This is a bramble bush. This is just a tumbleweed. This is, you know, picture the western, and the little going across. That's this. And they go up to the bramble, and they say, you reign over us. The bramble said to the trees, if in truth you're anointing me as king over you, come, take refuge in my shade. But if not, may fire come out from the bramble and consume the cedars of Lebanon. What is this? mean? I, I think it's decently clear. Jotham starts with olive trees and he works all the way down to a tumbleweed. Olive trees, most precious, valuable commodity, olive oil back in the day. I mean, it's still precious for us today, right? Olive is amazing. That's why we like French fries and we don't just eat potatoes. We need olive, right? Olive oil. Uh, olive oil is produced by these olives. So this tree is big. It's huge. It offers shade and it offers blessing and sustenance. Fig tree. Some would say it's valuable. 
I would say it's not valuable until 1891 when the Fig Newton was invented. That's when it became truly valuable. But even then, if we're honest, a cookie with figs inside is really a sorry excuse for a cookie. So they decided, have you heard the news? Internet tells you these things. Um, it's no longer Fig Newtons. Go buy Newtons. They dropped figs because they know what we've already known, right? Figs, eh, that's just a sorry excuse. So just Newtons. Figs are beautiful. They're, they're lovely to eat. They're going to sustain this people group. And so Jotham says, maybe they will reign. No. We don't want blessing. We don't want nice things. We don't want vines that give us uh, beautiful grape juice and wine. Everything that's a blessing, the trees say, no, no, we're not going to go for that. We're just going to go for the tumbleweed. The tumbleweed. You don't get anything from a tumbleweed. The tumbleweed is looking at cedars of Lebanon. Just think huge sequoia trees and a little tumbleweed looking up going, hey, do you want shade? I've got shade. Do you want to sit under my shade? And the huge sequoia looking down going, who are you? And yet the sequoia submits itself under the bramble bush, under this tumbleweed. Tumbleweeds offer nothing. You have olive trees, you have fig trees, you have vines that produce blessings. A tumbleweed just steals all of your water, gives you cuts, and starts fires. That's all it's good for. So, Jotham is saying, hey, you have a choice. You can give somebody as a leader over Israel power, but they can be good and qualified, or they can be awful. But instead of producing blessing, they're going to produce just a cursing over Israel. And that's exactly what Israel does. They pick a tumbleweed, and they turn this tumbleweed into their king. So, verse 16, Jotham says, If, therefore, you have dealt in truth and integrity in making Abimelech king, and if you've dealt well with Jerubbabel and his house, and have dealt well with him as he deserved, for my father fought for you and risked his life and delivered you from the hand of Midian, but you've raised, you have risen against my father's house today, and you've killed his son, 70 men on one stone, and you've made Abimelech the son of his maidservant king over the men of Shechem because he's a relative. If then you've done this in truth, and in integrity with Jerubbabel and his house this day, then rejoice in Abimelech. Let him rejoice in you that he's your king. But if not, let fire come out from Abimelech and consume the men of Shechem and Beth Malo. And let fire come out from the men of Shechem and Beth Malo and consume Abimelech. What he's saying is very simple. If it was right, good, just, and fair of you to let Abimelech be your king, to make him your king, then let him be a blessing to you. And if it was wrong for Abimelech to be made your king, if it was the wrong way that he went about becoming king, which it absolutely was, everybody knows that this was wrong, that he shouldn't be your king. And he's going to be a curse to you. He's going to burn you with fire. He's pleading with them. Don't accept unqualified leadership. This man is not qualified to be your king. Brambles make good fuel, but poor kings, they burn better than they reign as king. Abimelech's an unqualified leader, and people follow leaders like this all the time. Now, at this point in the sermon, there are many people who would go into, what makes a good leader? Let's look at Abimelech's bad leadership. Let's look at what makes a good leader. There are absolutely valuable lessons in the Bible and even here about what qualified leadership looks like. Choosing the right leader. Don't be fooled by the wrong leader. They're all worth thinking about and pondering. 
There's also lessons here politically about raising up kings, about governments. Brambles are dangerous. They catch fire easily, and they have thorns, which is just a perfect picture for government. It just it catches on fire easily. It has thorns, and it's dangerous. But the real point of Jotham's fabled curse is not about leadership. It's about the fact that Israel has now let their greatest enemy attack them from within, not from without. They were being attacked by Midian. They were being attacked by all these other oppressors. But now the greatest oppression has been willingly let into their midst and will attack them from the inside out. Fire will come from one of their own people to destroy them. Jotham says the curse. Then verse 21, he escapes and he flees. And he went to Be'er and remained there because of Abimelech and his brother. Doesn't want to be killed, so he hides. We have a corrupt king. We have Jotham and his fabled curse. It'd be easy to think, uh, okay, when is God going to deal with Abimelech? And how is he going to deal with him? Let's find that out. Verses 22 through the end of the chapter in verse 57, we have a crushing judgment. So we have a corrupt king. We have a, a fabled curse. And now we have a crushing judgment. Judgment is going to come. Jotham prophesied that judgment was going to come, and it's going to come. But notice, verse 22, now Abimelech ruled over Israel for three years. So judgment hasn't come in three years. This is the shortest amount of time that oppression ever happens in Israel, so it seems very short. But I wonder to Jotham if this seemed like a lifetime. I just prophesied that a curse is going to come, and Abimelech's still reigning. He's still reigning. I'm sure people were talking to Jotham. Hey, didn't you say that Abimelech was going to uh, be consumed by fire, and fire is going to come out of Abimelech and consume us? That hasn't happened yet. Maybe your God who spoke to you isn't even real, similar to Noah in his day. So what happens? Verse 23. God sends an evil spirit between Abimelech and the men of Shechem. Some would say that's a demon. I don't think it's a demon. I think it's just confusion. There's confusion happening. There's division happening. And the men of Shechem dealt treacherously with Abimelech so that the violence done to the 70 sons of Jerubbabel might come and their blood might be laid on Abimelech, their brother who killed them, and on the men of Shechem who strengthened his hands to kill his brothers. The men of Shechem set men in ambush against him on the tops of mountains and they robbed all who might pass by along the road. And it was told to Abimelech. What's happening here is people that don't like Abimelech being king are saying, let's make other people not like him as king. So let's just start ransacking people, robbing them as they come along the road, and people will hear, under Abimelech's rule, everybody's getting robbed. So Abimelech's terrible. We have no security with Abimelech being our king. That's what they're doing. Verse 26. Now Gaal, and this man is appropriately named because Gaal has gall. He is going to say something that's going to get him in trouble and all of his city in trouble. He's the son of Ebed. He comes with his relatives. He crosses over into Shechem, and the men of Shechem put their trust in him. They went out into the fields. They gathered grapes from their vineyards. They trod them. They held a festival, and they went into the house of their god, Baal worship, idol worship, and they drank, they ate, and they cursed Abimelech. It's very interesting, the irony. This man's basically going to say, I could do a better job than Abimelech. I could be king. And he's going to use similar arguments that Abimelech used. And he's even going to go feast in the house of the God that funded Abimelech's takeover. There's beautiful irony in these verses. But they're eating and they're drinking. Verse 28, Gauls, the son of Ebed, says, 
And they're in, note, note where they are. Again, don't read this book academically. Don't read it as a textbook. We have very angry people hanging out in the bar of Baal. And I believe that the technical term is sloshed. <laughs> completely wasted. So Gaal says, and if I can say it, and I believe the way that Gaal probably said these words, who is Bimelech? Who is Shechem? We should serve him. Is he not the son of Drubbable? And Zebels is lieutenant. Serve the men of Hamor. But why should we serve him? Just constantly, right? This guy is just a drunkard. And he's just shouting out things. You know what? If I was your king, I would do a much better job than Abimelech. I'd do a much better job than Abimelech. He's talking a big game. Would therefore, verse 29, that this people were under my authority, I would remove Abimelech. And he said to Abimelech, increase your army and come out. <laughs> Abimelech isn't even there. He says, Abimelech, wherever you are, come fight me. That's what he's saying. Come fight me. Now, verse 30, Zebel, the ruler of the city, hears. He's a ruler. He's a mayor. He's a governor in this city. And he hears, overhears at Baal's bar, what Gaul is saying. And his anger burns because he knows this man's going to get our city in trouble. This man's going to fight against Abimelech. He's going to get our city in trouble. So he sends messengers to Abimelech deceitfully in secret, saying, Behold, Gaal, the son of Abed, and his relatives have come to Shechem, and behold, they're stirring up the city against you. Now therefore, arise by night, you and the people who are with you. Lie wait in the fields in the morning. As soon as the sun is up, rise early. Rush upon the city. Behold, when the people who are with him, when he and the people who are with him come out against you, do whatever you want with them. He makes a plan. So Abimelech does it. Verse 34. All the people who are with him arise by night. They lay in wait against Shechem in four companies. Remember I said three companies is usually best. Abimelech thinks we need one more than that. He's scared. He's a ruthless leader. And they lay in wait. Now, verse 35, Gaal the son of Abed went out and stood in the entrance of the city gate. And Abimelech and the people who were with him arose from the ambush. And Gaal saw the people and he says to Zebel. So Zebel's there. I like to think that Zebel after overhearing Gaal's conversation, knowing that he's completely wasted, brings him coffee for his hangover, brings him some donuts, and they're just sitting at the entrance of the city, and they're looking out over the hillside. And Gaal, as he's sipping his coffee, trying to get over his hangover, goes, I think I see people. I think I see people. That's what he says, right? Verse 36. Look, people are coming down from the tops of the mountains. They're coming down. I see them. But Zebel says, basically, when was the last time you saw your ophthalmologist? You're, you're seeing shadows. That's just shadows on the mountain. They, they're not men. Gaul speaks again. He says, behold, listen. I know I have a hangover here, but I am seeing what I'm seeing, and there's an ambush. Behold, people are coming down from the highest part of the land. One company comes by the way of the uh, diviner's oak. And then Zebel, and I think he was practicing this all night long, my Bible says, where is your boasting now? Literally, it's where's your mouth now? You talked a big game. Where's your mouth now? I think he has been practicing that. Wait, wait, well, you see, where's, it's those just shadows. Those aren't people. No, 
Zebul, those are people, and they're coming down to kill us. No, they're not. Come on, man. You had a rough night last night. You're seeing things. Drink some more coffee. I'm serious, Zebul. Those are people. Yes, they are. Where's your mouth now? And then he runs away. He runs away. So, Zebul says, where's your boasting now? Verse 38. Who is Abimelech that we should serve him? That's what you said. Now, where's your boasting? Where's your mouth now? Isn't this not the people you despise? Go now, fight them. So Gaal went out before the leaders of Shechem, and he fought. Zebel runs away. Abimelech chases him. People die. Verse 41, Abimelech remains, but Zebel drives out Gaal, so they couldn't remain in Shechem. The next day, if you drop down to verse 42, all the way down to verse 45, for the sake of time, we'll just skip it, but the bottom line is, Abimelech goes in, he destroys the entire city, and he pours salt over the fields so that they can never grow crops again. He says, I'm going to make, I'm going to make a, a, a fool of your city. I'm going to make a, a picture, an illustration to the rest of the world. If you want to cross me, this is what's going to happen to you. But he doesn't just stop there. The leaders of the tower of Shechem, verse 46, hear of this, and they enter the inner chamber of the temple of el Berith. And it was told Abimelech that all the leaders of the tower of the Shechem were gathered together in this tower. So Abimelech went up to Mount Zalman. He and all the people who were with him. And Abimelech took an axe in his hand. He cut down a branch from the trees. He lifted it. He laid it on his shoulders. And he said to the people who were with him, What you've seen me do, do it likewise. Take a branch, put it on your back, and follow me. He's going to burn them out of this tower. So... He puts them inside the inner chamber, verse 49. All the people cut down branches, puts them inside the inner chamber, set the inner chamber on fire so that all the men of the tower of Shechem also died. About a thousand men and women. This is what you get. This is the literal fulfillment of that prophecy, right? You make this man king and fire is going to come out of him and destroy you. You will be destroyed. Judgment will come. Then Abimelech's not done. His bloodthirst has not been quenched. So what does he do? He went to Thebes and he camps against Thebes and he captures it. There's a strong tower in the center of the city. So all the men and the women with all the leaders flee and they go there. They shut themselves inside. They go up to the roof of the tower. So Abimelech came to the tower and he fought against it. And he approached the entrance of the tower to burn it with fire. So he's going to do the exact same thing, only to a tower and kill everybody in the tower. This man is on a rampage. But, verse 53, but a certain woman. I think one of the the main points of the book of Judges is girls rule. They just keep on doing amazing things. A certain woman. A certain woman threw an upper millstone on Abimelech's head, crushing him. Now, I have so many questions. So first of all, this is an upper millstone. If you think of a millstone, you have the bottom millstone that has a little trough around it. That's not what she's carrying because that's tons. That weighs tons. Now, what she's carrying, it doesn't weigh little. It's about 50 pounds. But it's the the stone that would sit in the trough that would have a post put through it that would be attached to another post and you just kind of wheel it around. Usually a beast of burden would do it. Or if you're Samson, which we'll find out, he's going to be attached to one of these and he's going to have to do this as if he were a donkey. Um... So, this is the upper millstone. But why? This is my question. Why does she have a millstone? Why why is she carrying a millstone? So, again, white space in Scripture. Her husband says to her, Honey, we have to leave. Abimelech's coming, 
We don't want to be destroyed. He's going to knock our house down. He's going to kill us. Let's go to the tower. And she says, okay, hang on. Let me pack for the journey. It's like, no, we can see the tower. It's right there. Don't need to pack much. And if we lose it, we lose it. It's okay. We just need our lives. And what does the woman say? How does she convince her husband? This, again, I, I don't think women have ever really packed lightly. And so she decides, no, no, no. She looks around, and as she's looking around, not clothing, not a sweater, not a broom, a millstone. This is what I need to take with me to the tower. What is this conversation like? Um, I need to take a millstone. Excuse me, honey, we're going to a tower, and in the tower, there's no bottom part of the millstone. You're not going to use it. And then she probably says, no, but this millstone has been in my family for four (laughs) generations. And I need to make sure that it's still, I'm not going to be the one that loses it. Do you remember great grandmama's pizza that she crushed with this millstone? We're not losing the millstone. So husband knows happy wife equals happy life. So he says, take the millstone. And by take the millstone, he means give me the millstone because I'm going to take the millstone. So he puts it on his back. They make their way up into the tower. And at the top of the tower... Oh, how the tables turn, because as Abimelech comes close, the wife looks out and goes, hey, honey, remember that millstone you didn't think we should bring? Can I have it? I've got a good use for it. And so she throws it out and crushes Abimelech. Now, apparently, not so much that he's instantly dead. It crushes his skull. Verse 54 He calls quickly, so he still has his ability to speak and to reason, calls quickly to a young man, his armor bearer, and he says to him, draw your sword and kill me so that it will never be said of me that a woman killed me. And I just love how that is etched in a book that contains a promise that not one letter will ever pass away. Like forever in all of eternity, we will know that Abimelech was killed by a woman. I just, I love that. In his pride, fatally injured, ever mindful of his reputation, he says, please kill me to his servant so that the woman wouldn't have done the work of killing him. So the young man pierces him through and he dies. When the men of Israel saw that Abimelech was dead, each departs to his own home. And as they're walking home, they're saying, we made a terrible decision. Did you hear about all the other cities and all the other towns that were destroyed? And somewhere in all of those conversations, somebody says these words. Jotham was right. God was right. Verse 56. Thus God repaid the wickedness of Abimelech, which he had done to his father in killing his 70 brothers, and also... God returned or repaid all the wickedness of the men of Shechem on their heads. Again, beautiful irony, beautiful turns of words. They were judged by Abimelech, and so God kills Abimelech. And how does he do it? By dropping a millstone on his head. But God doesn't stop there. He judges all of the evil people by dropping punishment on their heads. And the curse of Jotham, the son of Jerubbabel, came Upon them. This is just an amazing last section in this chapter. The Bible doesn't tell us how this conversation went between this woman and her husband. The Bible doesn't tell us how they ended up getting the millstone up to the top of the tower. The Bible doesn't tell us that. 
But I see sovereignty in these verses. I see God's hand of judgment working. And this is how judgment from God works. You don't always see how it's working. But it's inescapable. It's often quiet. It took three years for his judgment to actually be realized. But it's being revealed. Romans 1. The judgment of God, the wrath of God, Paul says, is being revealed now. It's not just being stored up for a later time. It's happening. Judgment is happening now. Though secret, though quiet, the judgment of God is always, always, always at work. God will not be mocked. Galatians chapter 6 says, you reap what you sow. And Abimelech has reaped in these verses what he was sowing in his terrible leadership. Nobody knows in these verses who are the good guys, who are the bad guys. It's just a mess, and it just gets worse. This is a picture of what happens when God is not king. But it's also a beautiful picture, an important picture of God's judgment. And I want to give you three very important truths about God's judgment as we end our time. Number one, God's judgment usually comes unseen. God's judgment usually comes unseen. The people didn't have some divine hand working in their midst. They didn't see it. Sometimes it it works like that. Remember the literal divine hand of God writing on the wall in Daniel? In our own day, we don't have a divinely inspired narrator telling us where or when or how God is judging people. We just know judgment's happening. So let that be a lesson to us. We need to be very careful of two things. We need to be very careful, number one, of saying that we know that an action is God's judgment. We need to be careful of that. On other people, right? We need to be very careful if we see some terrible thing happen to say that's God's judgment. We don't know that. So don't say that. It might be, but if God doesn't explicitly say, when this tree falls down and it kills these people in their house, that's judgment for what they did, then we shouldn't say it. And secondly, in the same vein, you shouldn't say that about your own life. So often, we kind of just have spiritual karma with God. I did a good thing. Oh, this blessing must be because of the good thing I did. Or I did a bad thing. And then when something bad happens to us, we go, oh, it must be God's judgment. We don't know that. It might be. But be very careful of saying, I know it, because the majority of the Bible just houses God's invisible judgment without any narrator. Number two, not only does God's judgment come unseen usually, it usually comes through the outworking of human sin. God's judgment usually comes without God having to do anything. God just sits and lets judgment happen. The prophecy that was made was Abimelech's going to be killed and And evil men are going to be killed. And Abimelech kills evil men with his sin. And this woman, just in desperation, kills Abimelech. God didn't need to send a lightning bolt. Usually, judgment just happens by natural events, by the outworking of natural human evil. We see this all over the Bible. God says, well, this evil nation, Assyria, is going to go judge Israel. And then something's going to happen to judge Assyria. And then something's going to happen to judge Babylon. But it's all natural people just living out their sin. God frequently judges this way, using evil to destroy evil. So, God, God's judgment, number one, usually comes unseen. Number two, it's usually the outworking of human sin or human evil. But finally, number three, God's judgment usually comes after a very long wait. God's judgment usually comes after a very long wait. 
It had been three years since Jotham had given the warning and the curse. Three years when it seemed like God was doing nothing. The wait is covered in one verse in this book. But to Jotham, it must have felt like a lifetime of waiting. I said that God was going to act. Where is his acting? I said he was going to judge. Where is his judgment? He had to learn patience and trust. And God's judgment works this way. So gradually, there's no smell of fire and brimstone. Sinai itself isn't shaking with smoke and thunder. Most often, God's judgments work silently, unobserved. We need to be very careful and guard ourselves from thinking that God only avenges when there's some huge racket happening. Judgment happens unseen. Judgment happens through just natural events. Judgment happens through a waiting period. But the bottom line is judgment happens. You've seen one scene of God's judgment. There's another scene of God's judgment where the most infamous pseudo-king, not Abimelech, but the Antichrist, is going to set himself up as king. In Revelation 19, God is going to destroy him. My friends, judgment is coming. Judgment is coming. There's no question about that. God will repay every single deed that you and I have ever done in offense against him. And let's face it, we're, we're bad people, right? I mean, we do good things, we do nice things, but deep down inside, we absolutely know we're not perfect. We know we're not perfect. And that's the standard that it takes to get to heaven. You have to be perfect. You have to be sinless. And you and I both know we're not sinless. We're not, we might not sin more than other people we see, but we're not sinless. And sin must be judged. Sin must be punished. Why? Why must sin be punished? Some people say, oh, if a loving God really loved me, then he wouldn't punish sin. No, True love has inside of it true hate. If you don't hate that which offends what you love, then you cannot tell me that you love that thing. If you, if you tell me I love Jewish people and then you say, but I really don't think the Holocaust was that big of a deal, you cannot say you love Jewish people. True love always has inside of it true hatred for that which offends what you love. What does God love? Perfection, holiness, absolute sinlessness. And therefore, he's going to hate when anything goes against that. He has to. People say, well, why doesn't he just punish me here? Why does he send me to hell for all of eternity? That doesn't seem like a just punishment. If God really, if God really loved people, he wouldn't punish them forever. That's not fair. We've talked about this before. The punishment doesn't just fit the crime. The punishment fits who the crime was done to, who the crime was against. Uh, if I'm playing basketball with Micah and, and Micah dunks over me and I get super angry because I and my hulkish figure should never be dunked upon, <laughs> and I punch Micah, it's going to happen to our relationship. It'll, it'll be severed for a little while. Next time he sees me holding the basketball saying, hey, you want to shoot hoops? He's going to, no, 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 I'm, I'm good. But he's a nice guy. He's going to forgive me and we'll go back to normal. If because of my hulkish figure in this made up story, um, the hulkish figure part's not made up. Uh, <laughs> if 
I punch Micah, and Micah gets so scared that he calls the cops. And the cops come out, and I punch a cop. It's the exact same offense, but what's going to happen to me now? I'm going to go to jail. For sake of time, let's say somehow I get in front of the president and I punch the president. What's going to happen to me now? I might be on death row. I might be convicted as threatening the United States government and my life might be taken. Same offense. Punch Micah, punch a cop, punch the president. Completely different sentence. So what happens if we punch God with our sin? He's infinite and he's eternal. Therefore, our punishment is infinite and eternal. And by the way, if we sin and we don't want God, then why would it be a loving thing of God to say, you know what, I'm going to force you who don't like me, who don't ever want to be with me, to be with me forever in heaven. That's not loving. God says, you get your choice. And if your choice is, I don't love you, then you made your choice. I'm not forcing you. People in heaven love God. So much more can be said about our judgment, but the reality is judgment's coming. I want to plead with you. Every single sin you have ever committed will be punished. You can either deal with that punishment yourself or you can follow Jesus and trust in his having dealt with that punishment on your behalf at the cross once and for all. Those are the only two options. You either deal with the punishment yourself, you either take on the judgment yourself or you trust in Jesus who lived the perfect sinless life never sinning, and then died in our place as if he had sinned our sinful life so that we could be treated by the Father as if we never sinned once, as if we lived Jesus' perfect life. That is the gospel. Jesus died in our place. He rose from the dead, conquering sin, conquering death, offering us eternal life if we would just place our faith in Jesus Christ and trust in him. So you either will be judged by God yourself. You will bear it all on the last day. Or you can live as a free man and woman now, knowing your judgment that is so rightfully due because of your sin against the Holy God. That judgment has been paid for, and you have no fear of future wrath. You have no fear of future punishment. You have no fear. You only have love from the Father, adopted as his son or daughter. Those are your only two options. And so I plead with you today, let this day be the day that you know with certainty that your judgment has been put upon Jesus and you can walk out of these doors forgiven, free, if you would simply admit that you are a sinner, admit your need for a Savior and trust in Jesus' saving work. Father, we thank you for our time together this morning in a portion of Scripture that would seem to be very not relevant, just irrelevant to our situation, to our setting, but it's so relevant. Judgment is coming, it's happening, it's usually unseen. We usually have to wait, but it's coming, and we know it's coming. So, Father, I ask that you would be gracious in granting the gift of eternal life and salvation to some in this room who, at this moment, if they were to die, they would bear the punishment for their sins themselves. God, you made a way for us not to have to fear punishment or judgment. So we run to you now. You are the rightful king. And we submit to your rule now. In Jesus' name, amen.